0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. I am back after a two-week hiatus. I had to go out of town for a little while and had to put my podcast on pause, but it is good to be back. For this show, I have one brand new movie to review for you, and two others are somewhat new. To me, they're kind of old, because I usually just pay attention to the, the movies that are new from the weekend that I'm doing this podcast, but I'm going to start with the newest film right away. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is A Haunting in Venice. It is the latest film from director Kenneth Branagh, who also stars for the third time as Detective Hercule Poirot. And this time, he's not exactly investigating a murder. He is, but unlike the films Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, he's not just examining murders that take place in a kind of whodunit. He's also questioning his own belief system. And the film takes place in Venice, Italy, of course, in the year 1947. And having lost his faith in God and humanity, Hercule Poirot has retired to Venice and refuses to accept new cases. That is, until an old acquaintance, a mystery writer by the name of Ari... Ariadne Oliver, who's played by Tina Fey, convinces him to attend a Halloween party, which takes place at a palazzo of a former opera singer by the name of Rowena Drake. And this party is to be followed by a seance led by a medium by the name of Joyce Reynolds, in which Mrs. Drake hopes to speak to her dead daughter Alicia, who jumped off the palazzo's balcony a year prior following the breakup with her fiancé, Maxime Girard. So, typical of films that are based on novels by Agatha Christie, there are a lot of characters here, and each one of them has their own unique backstory. But, this is different in the sense that it's a bit more of a Halloween story, and, of course, it's released in ample time for Halloween. It's actually based on a novel written by Agatha Christie, not called A Haunting in Venice, even though A Haunting in Venice would have been a great title for the story. It's actually a story called Halloween Party. And interestingly enough, Halloween in the title of Agatha Christie's novel is spelled with an apostrophe between the two E's. I don't exactly know why that is. I don't know who spells Halloween that way, but that is just the way Agatha Christie titled her novel. And it's also one of those novels of Agatha Christie's that was probably one of her least well-reviewed. But even though I haven't read the basis of the movie Haunting in Venice, I still appreciated this film for the fact that it wasn't just a whodunit. It wasn't one of those typical movies based on Agatha Christie novels where there are a lot of people gathered in one place, somebody dies, and it's up to Detective Poirot to find out who did it. There is that, but also Hercule Poirot is not just questioning who killed whom and for what reason. He's also determining whether or not supernatural occurrences were the reason behind the murder and Kenneth Branagh just like in his previous two films based on on Agatha Christie novels does really well playing Hercule Poirot and he also has a very good cast of characters along with him played by very fine actors one of the actors uh, Jamie Dornan who plays Dr. Leslie Ferrier is one of those actors who I've said previously he was so bad in a certain series of movies he should get out of acting. But he should thank God for collaborating with Kenneth Branagh, both for this film and for the previous film that Kenneth Branagh directed but didn't star in, which was Belfast, because Jamie Dornan was excellent in those films. And I had said previously that he was bad in the Fifty Shades movies, and he most certainly was but now Jamie Dornan has proven twice that he can be a great actor if given the right material and with the right director. So kudos to both Jamie Dornan and Kenneth Branagh for that. And also I really liked Tina Fey as Ariadne Oliver, the somewhat jaded mystery writer here. And this is arguably the first time that Tina excuse me Tina Fey has paid God, has played a character who was other than herself. Of course, she has played other people with different names, but... Similar to the teacher she played in Mean Girls and Liz Lemon and the mo- other movies in which she's starred, she's generally played what can assume to be herself. But here she's playing another character, and she actually plays that character very well. So much so, in fact, that I had to actually remind myself, even though she wasn't wearing any makeup, that that was actually not Tina Fey. I also really liked uh, Ricardo Scarmach. Scarm, excuse me. Ricardo Sc- Scamarchio as Hercule Poirot's bodyguard, Vitale Portfolio. And this could have been a one note performance, but Mr. Portfolio also had some other backstory as well. And the same can go for the second-billed actress in here, Michelle Yeoh, who plays Mrs. Reynolds, who is the socialite who wants to contact the spirit of her dead daughter. And of course, Hercule Poirot is not believing a word of Michelle Yeoh's character's claims, even when she seems to be possessed. But it's it's actually good, because it's not just Hercule Poirot solving a mystery, it's also him somewhat questioning his belief in logic, and I think that's a great way for the saga of Hercule Poirot to go, and I don't think that Kenneth Branagh is going to play Hercule Poirot as many times as Peter Falk played Columbo or Andy Griffith played Matlock, he would probably have to star in his own series to do that, but he's making a valiant effort playing Hercule Poirot as many times as possible. And fortunately, he's playing it in some in a movie where you, which is well done enough, so that you would actually want to see the further mysteries of Hercule Poirot on the big screen with a bigger budget. So I think A Haunting in Venice, even though it was based on a novel of Agatha Christie's that was not quite as well received critically when it was released arguably more than makes up for its source material including having a better title but on top of that not only are their characters rich but Kenneth Branagh certainly makes the most as a director with his cinematography team of getting a lot of great shots of Venice, which is probably not very easy to do, particularly for a movie that takes place in 1947, but I was sold for this movie. I think there were a few weak parts here and there. Like for instance, there's one scene where they discover a basement in this former orphanage and the logical thing to do in this basement would be to just run the other way, especially when you see rats and literally corpses of other children in this basement that that was a little bit far fetched, but overall, I, I think that everything else about this movie worked. And I remembered *A Haunting in Ven- Venice* a lot more than I remembered the last Hercule Poirot movie, *Death on the Nile*, including a lot of the characters. I think the characters probably stuck with me a lot more than they did in *Death of, the, of a of, you know, Death on the Nile* even though I haven't completely forgotten that movie. But A Haunting in Venice gets my rating of a knockout. I think it is a very smart movie that arguably elevates its source material. Kenneth Branagh not only only does well acting as himself, but he also does well directing everyone, including himself, which is not particularly easy for somebody who started out as an actor and later became a director. But unlike most other actors who want to become directors, Kenneth Branagh has over 30 years, maybe even 35 years of acting and directing experience simultaneously, and A Haunting in Venice shows he still hasn't lost his touch in both categories. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Equalizer 3. And this is the latest film, the latest action film where Denzel Washington is rejoining forces with director Antoine Fuqua to tell the continuing saga of Robert McCall, who is an assassin with a Robin Hood streak. And the first two equalizer movies, the one that came out in 2014 and the one that came out in 2020, have the same kind of story where Denzel Washington's character is off the grid and is helping people in need while taking as little credit for it as possible. And also demonstrating his stealth assassin skills. This time, unlike the first two films, Robert McCall is not in Boston. He's actually in a small village in southern Italy where he finds himself at home. It would have been good to have gotten a little bit more backstory behind why Robert McCall settled down in this southern Italy town. But eventually he discovers his friends are under the control of local crime bosses. And as events turn deadly, McCall knows what he has to do. He has to become his friend's protector by taking on The Mafia, which probably could be one of Antoine Fuqua's most ambitious films to date. However, it does kind of fall, fail in comparison to the other two Equalizer movies, in a certain sense, where it kind of delves into action movie cliches and also some other instances where the protagonists and the antagonists make some somewhat questionable decisions. And interestingly enough, I've been on board with the Equalizer series since I first saw the first Denzel Washington film in 2014, and it did not come to my attention that the Equalizer was a TV show in the 80s until I was doing the research for this show. I guess I had to do I had to hone my research skills back when I was hosting the show in 2014. But in any event, The Equalizer was actually an American spy thriller series that originally aired on CBS from 1985 to 1989. Now, at the time, I wasn't even 10 years old yet, and I didn't watch very many I didn't watch very much TV at the time, let alone primetime shows. But the Equalizer show that was on in the 80s starred uh, Edward Woodward as Robert McCall. And I was actually aware, even though I haven't actually seen, the remake of the show, which was probably more influenced by the Denzel Washington movies. That, air, that first aired in 2021 and starred Queen Latifah. I haven't seen that show because I watch very little TV, but I am very much aware of it. But anyway, in The Equalizer 3, which I'm very glad they didn't call The Three Equalizer, even though they could have. If they did, I think that probably would have set the movie off to a bit of a gimmicky start. But in any event... Denzel Washington is back as Robert McCall, and yeah, he does take on the mob, but the scenes where he's taking on some of these mobsters are somewhat contrived, and the ending to one of the mob bosses here, specifically uh, the one named uh, Vincent Quaranta, who's played by Andrea Scarduzio, uh, doesn't leave too much to the imagination in in the sense that you see everything but as i was watching it i kind of wished the kill was a little more creative and there are also some other scenes where guns are being pointed at certain people and there's that action movie cliche where the person has to make a very long speech before firing the gun and particularly when it's denzel washington's character who is in danger, that's when the film feels a little bit more like a cliched Western than it does a legitimate action film. But with that said, once Denzel Washington's Robert McCall gets going and starts making his assassinations against bad people, that's when the film livens up a little bit. And it's also helped by a strong supporting performance by Dakota Fanning, who plays an FBI agent by the name of Emma Collins. What connection do Robert McCall and Emma Collins have? The movie doesn't exactly explain until the very end, and I think it's actually a a clever piece of exposition, and it also has a bit of a clever twist at the end. I just wish that the action before that twist was a bit more original and far less cliched. But Denzel Washington and Dakota Fanning work very well together. And I've said this before about Dakota Fanning. Dakota Fanning has a younger sister named Elle Fanning, who's been in a number of movies uh, recently. Obviously, arguably more than her older sister has, but I do think that Dakota Fanning is a better actress. In addition to that, this is, this is not the first time that Denzel Washington and Dakota Fanning have been in a movie together. Way back in 2005, when Dakota Fanning was a promising child actress... They were both in the movie Man on Fire, where Denzel Washington played the bodyguard for Dakota Fanning's character, and they both worked well in that film as well, so it's good to see them back together again, and Dakota Fanning, with her acting, does not disappoint. However, I thought that the the best parts about this film happened at the very end, kind of after some of the action took place, particularly the demise of certain characters. And I won't reveal exactly too much about who meets their demise, how or why, but I really wish that the progression up to the climax was just as clever as the aftermath, but it really wasn't. But still, this was a good film to watch and I give it my rating of a checkout because the, the movie's elevated just simply by the fact that Denzel Washington is in it and is giving it his all, but he's not the only person who is actually uh,
1: good in this
0: film. I also like Dakota Fanning. I also liked a, a smaller part played by uh, Gaia Scodellario, who plays an unassuming waitress at a cafe that Robert McCall frequents, and the scenes between her and Denzel Washington are dynamic and also appropriately understated. But again, the movie should have deviated away from some of those other action movie cliches. And if it had, it would have been a better movie on par with the first two equalizer films. But I still give it a marginal recommendation because it's, it's a worthy sequel. It's just not as good as the originals. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Bottoms. This is a teen sex comedy directed by Emma Seligman, who is reteaming with Rachel Sennett for the first time. Uh, Excuse me, for the second time. Reteaming for the first time. What was I thinking? Anyway, Emma Seligman made her directorial debut in 2020, along with Rachel Sennett starring in the film Shiva Baby, which I regretfully haven't seen. I think in 2020, I wasn't going out to movies because I couldn't because of the pandemic, and I also only subscribed at the time to Netflix, so there were a ton of films that I missed and... I don't exactly regret it. I can always catch up with these films later, but the point was that life in 2020 was a complete mess, and of course, my movie-going experience was also very muddled as well. Basically, 2020 was a bad year, and the three years that came after it, well... Another story for another time, but let me just say that they haven't been as bad, and my movie going habits have been more consistent. But anyway, the movie Bottoms is Emma Seligman's sophomore effort. Is it sophomore slump? Well, I can't make that decision based on the Shiva Baby itself, but I was kind of hoping for the best from this movie, but frankly, I do didn't think it was as good as other people saying, are saying it is. But the movie is about two unpopular queer high school students, two uh, women, who start a fight club to have sex before graduation. And when I read the synopsis of this film weeks ago when I was doing my segment, What's Coming Up Next, I actually said on the microphone to you, the listening audience, that starting a fight club to have sex makes absolutely no sense, especially in high school. But I said, with a, a great cast like Io Edebiri, who plays Rachel Sennett's character's best friend in this film, I am going to give this film the benefit of the doubt, and maybe this part will actually make sense. And honestly, it doesn't. And maybe I didn't see this film as a, a satire. The fact that it's labeled a teen sex comedy may have... Brought my expectations for what kind of subgenre this movie could be down, but still, it made a bit of sense them starting the club based on the context of this film. You know, how they're facing expulsion and they have to come up with an excuse very quickly to their principal about starting a self defense club, but how it actually turns into a fight club, I don't exactly know. And also, the expectations that the two of them are going to have sex with their crushes who are also both women obviously also doesn't make sense in the grand scheme of things and there are some other scenes in this film that are very unrealistic and as these films are as the as these parts of the films are progressing i began to think to myself where are the parents where are the teachers and where are the referees particularly because the climax of the film takes place not at the prom which I'm kind of glad they dodged that high school movie cliche but at what i believe to be either a homecoming game or a game where the the high school team takes on the the main their their main rivals and there's a huge history behind that rivalry which is typical of high schools but there are other things in this movie that don't really make sense for example the football team in this film wears their uniforms and their pads all the time, not just in practice or at games where they're supposed to be wearing them. They, they wear them throughout school, which at least when I was in high school and I'm 21 years separated from high school, the football team didn't do that. And I know that because I was part of the football team. On game days, we'd wear our uniforms, but in no way were we required to wear our pads. And that's really uncomfortable to wear those pads, especially items like a jock strap, for prolonged periods of time. But the movie just kind of goes with it here. And if this were a satirical cartoon, adult cartoon, like Family Guy, it would make sense in that context, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense here. What were the football team planning to do when they were wearing those pads? Were they expecting to uh, block somebody who was tackling one of their players? I don't exactly know. And in addition to that, all the characters, including the two main characters, PJ, played by Rachel Sennett, and Josie, played by Io Edabiri, are surprisingly underdeveloped. Not only are their crushes underdeveloped, Josie has a crush on a cheerleader by the name of Isabel, who's played by Havana Rose Lou, and PJ has a crush on another cheerleader by the name of Brittany, who's played by Kaya Gerber. And it's very obvious to see why they have crushes on these girls, because they are cute, regardless of your sexual orientation. But I, I didn't get to see their parents, their interactions with their parents. I think there could have been an opening for irony with these two best friends who are both lesbians, but they aren't in a relationship and they never had been. And I liked that the film dodged maybe the cliche of these friends who are lesbians eventually getting together in the end. I I applauded for that, but I just didn't, I, I wanted to know more About these characters and I didn't quite get that. Instead, it felt like the film was trying to be as clever as movies like Superbad or Booksmart, which it seems to have taken a lot of influence from specifically. There are these two unpopular people who are very smart and they want to achieve one thing before they leave their high school life behind for college for good. But the context of the film just didn't really make a ton of sense. Why did they feel the pressure to have sex in a generation that isn't having a lot of premarital sex? I mean, maybe taking a, a bit of a step back and examining Gen Z, I, I might have been a little bit distracted here. But in addition to that, what kind of high school would allow them to have a fight club club? As an extracurricular activity with a teacher supervising women beating the hell out of each other. And I'm not talking in terms of a cat fight either. They they fight like men. They punch each other in the face and they yeah, they they don't fight like the stereotypical girl, which is okay, but as a as a school activity, I don't believe that would happen. There will be parental complaints and lawsuits left and right. And I know this because I was in high school around the time that lawsuits were prevalent and PC culture was just emerging. So maybe I just missed the mark on this film. But to me, on top of it being over the top, it altogether wasn't particularly funny. And it was also it also fell victim to a lot of these characters being underdeveloped. And also, there were things that happened outside of this female fight club that would not fly today. For example, there's one of the main characters whose mother is a nympho, for lack of a better term, and she is discovered by her daughter having sex with a high school student. Now, maybe the high school student is 18 and it's legal, but even if it's legal, it's tacky as hell. And yet it seems like the rest of the community just kind of goes along with it. There are of course the dirty slut jokes, but no one seems to question the morality of this kind of incident. I don't know. Maybe I, I missed the mark on Th- this film, but to me, on top of some of the outrageous over-the-top stunts here, the film was overall just not very funny, and I felt like Rachel Sennett and Ioetta Berry, in particular, were more concerned with spouting as much smart dialogue or maybe even pseudo-intellectual dialogue as they could while maybe hoping the audience wouldn't question whether this movie was actually smart. And to me, it wasn't smart, and for that reason, this movie gets my rating of a strikeout. I do credit the movie for its ambition and also making high school look like hell, but I do kind of feel like some of the ways in which it made high school look over the top and some of the other ways in which it tried to be funny didn't really fit into the context of this film, and also didn't really contribute to this film have met, having many legitimate laughs, at least for me. Even the title of the film, Bottoms, didn't make any sense. I don't even think the word Bottoms was even spoken in this film. I've seen smarter high school films that weren't as explicit as this R-rated comedy, and I have the feeling that this film might get a watch or two from people who are open-minded and maybe are struggling with the same things that the characters of PJ and Josie are struggling with here, but after one watch, I think there are probably some other better high school films that teenagers would want to watch and maybe even nostalgic adults would want to watch after this. I don't think this is a groundbreaking movie, but it's obvious from its ambition that it really wants to be. Unfortunately, it fell short of that. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of September 18th through September 22nd, 2023. And it's hard to believe that 2023 is almost over. We are almost 75% of the way through. Now, of course, I'm very excited for holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas that are coming up. But man, and it also means that some great movies are more than guaranteed to be released later on this year. But it's kind of interesting just to think how far we've come in 2023, even though 2023 has... Overall, not been a great year for movies for a number of reasons, but there's always hope for the future. But anyway, one of the films that is subject to being released in theaters, presumably for one day on September 18th, which is a Monday, is a movie that's called Route 60, The Biblical Highway, I don't know if this is a literal highway or a figurative highway, but this is a documentary which will definitely appeal to the church-going crowd, and there are some people that call this Route 60 the Path of the Patriarchs, and it carves through the heart of the Promised Land, uh, and it's also known as the Biblical Spine of Israel. It is a highway of deep historical significance, while often the scene of unrest and violence, as is typical of areas in the uh, Gaza Strip. And it is a 146-mile road of asphalt and concrete (laughs) which doesn't sound too holy to me, but it begins in Nazareth, which is Israel's largest Arab city and ends in Beersheba, one of Israel's high tech centers, which is kind of interesting because I've never heard of Beersheba, let alone known that Israel had a high tech center running north to south. Route 60 connects ancient Israel with modern Israel, Jews and Christians with Muslims and Israelis with Palestinians. This trek is far more than a two-lane highway. It is a historic, sacred link to the roots of Judaism and Christianity and the stories of the Old and New Testaments. Follow world-changing diplomats David Friedman and Mike Pompeo as they venture down this sacred road, treading the very ground Abraham, Jacob, King David, and Jesus once walked. Presumably not when it was concrete. Yeah. Jesus walking on concrete. I I think he would probably float on concrete. But anyway, discover the history, witness the healing, and realize the hope along Route 60, the biblical highway. Now, full disclosure, I am very curious about this film. But the fact that Mike Pompeo, who is the former Secretary of State under former President Trump, is in this film is making me a bit skeptical. So I'm not exactly looking forward to seeing the film, but I might see it. And if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. But speaking of movies that don't make a ton of sense, or that I'm not looking forward to seeing, the movie that is probably going to be the biggest one to come out on September 22nd, which is a Friday, is Expendables 4. And interestingly enough, Expendables 4 is stylized and has its name written on IMDb as Expend Four Bulls. In other words, the A in Expendables is replaced by the number four, which is not a good sign, especially considering the last Fantastic Four movie also replaced the A in Fantastic with the number four, and people pejoratively call that film fan when I saw it, I thought it was a flawed movie, but I didn't think it was that bad. But I do think that another Fantastic Four movie that could be made in the future could be a lot better. And if it's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it does have the potential to be great. And there have been some MCU movies that have come out that have hinted about the Fantastic Four making an appearance in that beloved cinematic universe, but. The, there's also the case that the MCU might be running out of gas at this point, judging particularly from the critical um, failure of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, amongst other films. And it's not looking very good for the film The Marvels that's coming out either. Of course, I'm going to give those films a chance, just as I'm going to give Expend a chance. But the reason I'm not looking forward to seeing this is because... There are some key members of the previous Expendables movies, and by that I mean the first two films, which were good and definitely had a lot of R-rated, delightful goriness. But there are key members of the previous Expendables who are not in this film. So, Sylvester Stallone is coming back as his assassin character, whose name is Barney, And Jason Statham is joining him as Christmas, in addition to Dolph Lundgren as Gunner, and Randy Couture as Toll Road. But that's about it with the original Expendables. So Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't in this movie, even though the first Expendables film came out when he was still governor of California. So to see Arnold Schwarzenegger in a movie while he's simultaneously governor of California was a really, really big deal back in... 2009. But regardless, this Expend Four Bulls movie has me skeptical about it being good or fun for a number of reasons. One, 50 Cent has third billing in this movie, and 50 Cent is not a good actor. He's also somebody who mumbles his speech, and basically I've not been impressed with the films in which I've seen 50 Cent to this day. Even less impressive is the actress who has fourth billing, Megan Fox. Oh boy. Well, where do I start with Megan Fox? Basically, it is so unfair to millions of worthy actors out there that Megan Fox is a still a household name and B still in movies. Because of the movies that I've seen with Megan Fox in them, which are or are not directed by Michael Bay, what they have in common is that Megan Fox does not look like she wants to be in the film in which she's acting. And I don't think that this film is going to be an exception to this rule. But of course, I'll have to see. Some other more noteworthy actors who are in this film who were not in any of the previous Expendables film include Tony Jaa, who is a Taiwanese actor. You also have Iko Uwais, who is Indonesian. And in his native Indonesia, he's actually a huge movie star. And also, Andy Garcia is in this film. And Andy Garcia, I have no problem with as an actor. I think he's an excellent actor. As a matter of fact, going back to The Godfather Part Three, he was easily the best part of that movie. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor... ...for that film, but when he's nominated alongside Joe Pesci for Goodfellas... ...it's easy to see why he didn't win, but he did deserve the nomination. However, Andy Garcia as of late, when he's been in movies that are sequels... ...like Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again... ...that's usually when the sequel does not do especially well, critically or commercially. It's no fault of Andy Garcia, but like Ted McGinley, whenever you see Andy Garcia in a movie... It's kind of when the franchise jumps the shark, which is probably why Andy Garcia has not been any, in any MCU films yet. But the moment he is, that may be the end of the MCU as we know it. But Expend Four Bulls is a film that I don't think is going to be great. It's may not even be good. But I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another film that's coming out on... September 22nd, is a film that's called It Lives Inside. And this film is heralded as being from the producers of Get Out. It's not from the writers of Get Out. It's not from the director of Get Out. But it is from the producers. And I really hate it when, when people market movies this way. When they say that it's from a producer of a legendary movie. Just because it's from a producer doesn't mean it's necessarily good particularly because producers don't really have a lot of creative control over certain films. As a matter of fact, when a producer does put input into a film, it usually is for the worst of the film. So, regardless, I'll just tell you what It Lives Inside is about. It is about an Indian-American teenager struggling with her cultural identity and has a falling out with her former best friend and in the process unwittingly releases a demonic entity that grows stronger by feeding on her loneliness. Now this sounds actually interesting, so you don't need to compare this film to Get Out in any way, but the star of the film is an actress by the name of Megan Suri, who I have not seen in any other film, and some of the other supporting cast members include Nira Bajwa, Mohana Krishnan, and Betty Gabriel. A lot of Indian names in this film, most of which I don't know. But it sounds like a very interesting coming-of-age movie that is directed by and written by Bishal Dutta. I'm interested in seeing this film, and if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on September 22nd is Stop Making Sense. Now, if you think that this film's title has been taken... You're absolutely right. This is a re-release of the documentary that was directed by Jonathan Demme and features a live performance or a live pre-recorded performance by Talking Heads. This is definitely a film where David Byrne owns the stage and vicariously he owns the film as well. I have actually seen this film on DVD. I have not seen it in theaters because it came out in 1984 when I was an infant, going into being a toddler. So, obviously, I didn't know who the Talking Heads were, let alone had ever been to a movie before. But it's a very good concert feature. It's considered one of the best concert features ever put on film. And it came when the Talking Heads were at the height of their popularity. And it also features a performance by a spinoff group of the Talking Heads called the TomTom Club, where they perform their best-known hit, Genius of Love. It's, it's really an engrossing documentary, and I will see it, but since I've already seen it before and because it's a movie that's nearly 40 years old, I'm sort of debating whether or not I will review it for you on a future show, but we'll see. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And previously, I gave you my first segment of of what's coming up next, where I gave you all the films that are subject to being released in theaters between September 18th and September 22nd, 2023. Now it's time for me to get into the movies that are subject to being released on streaming platforms, beginning with Netflix. And today... Or rather, on Saturday, September 16th, the film My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2 made an appearance on Netflix. So if you haven't seen My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, or rather, if you are planning to see that but haven't seen the first two movies, you at least have the chance to see the first My Big Fat Greek Wedding on Netflix should you be subscribing to that streaming service. I have seen My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. I haven't seen 3 yet. That is actually on my bucket list of movies to see. And I'll have to play a lot of catch-up next week to get some films that I missed. I'm going to be working on that. But My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2 is a film that I didn't exactly love. In fact, I think I gave it a strikeout. Because it seemed more like contractual obligation than it seemed like a film that needed to continue the story from the first My Big Fat Greek Wedding movie, which I believe is still the highest-grossing independent film of all time. Now, Napoleon Dynamite could have surpassed it, but I think My Big Fat Greek Wedding, uh, the original one, still holds that record. But there are some other films that will be appearing on Netflix of uh, that week that I just mentioned, September 18th through September 22nd. There's a film that is a documentary that will be premiering on Netflix on Tuesday, September 19th, and the film is called The Saint of Second Chances. And that actually sounds like a really good fictional film because it it actually kind of sounds like a a film that Denzel Washington would do, like The Equalizer 4, The Saint of Second Chances, because technically... Denzel Washington's character was the saint of second chances, but this film is about Mike Veek, who is the son of legendary MLB owner Bill Veek, who blows up his father's career, I assume that's a bad thing, and then spends the next few decades learning the value of a second chance. So that is kind of vague. And what's interesting is that Mike Veek, as you might expect, is interviewed here and in dramatized footage, he's portrayed by Charlie Day. So it it seems to be a bit of a docudrama. And one of the narrators for this, actually the narrator for this film, is Jeff Daniels. So already you have a very good cast right there. Daryl Strawberry makes an appearance as himself. So I don't know if this is going to be... A film about the New York Mets, because Daryl Strawberry played for the Yankees in the nineties and the the Mets for a greater part of the eighties. But anyway, the Saint of Second Chances sounds like an intriguing documentary. And I I assume that Mike Veek blew up his father's career in a bad way because otherwise we'd be talking about second chances. But you do hear about careers blowing up and that being a good thing. But I assume it's a bad thing. But either way, I'm going to check this documentary out. And if I see it for you for next week's show, I'll review it for you. And on Wednesday, September 20th, there are no films that are going to be premiering. But just for your information, there's a series that's going to be premiering called Hard Hard broken, not heartbroken. There is a season two premiere of a series called Murtaugh Murders, a family dynasty. And also the fifth season of New Amsterdam will also be appearing on Netflix. On Thursday, September 21st, again, no movies, but season two of Kengen Ashura will be premiering. Season 4 of Scissor 7 will be premiering, and the final season of Sex Education will also be premiering on Netflix. It's a good thing I'm not a TV critic because, man, there are so many series that are coming out, arguably more than movies, and it is kind of dizzying and overwhelming to keep track of them all just on Netflix itself. But Netflix was the first streaming platform to come out with a lot of these, uh, series, original series, it was previously unheard of. And now virtually every streaming platform is catching up. So regardless, let's move on to Friday, September 22nd on Friday, September 22nd. There are actually three movies that are going to be premiering. Uh, one of them is called the black book, and this is actually a Netflix original So there was a romantic comedy that came out in 2004 that was called The Black Book that starred uh, Brittany Murphy, but this uh, black book, it, it looks like a foreign film, it's an action film for sure, and it is about a man who is a bereaved deacon who, after his son is framed for a kidnapping, takes justice into his own hands and fights a corrupt police gang to absolve him. And this film is directed by Editi Ifiong and is probably not an American film, not that there is anything wrong with that, but if I have time to see that film, I'll review it for you on a future show. Another film that is expected to appear on Netflix on Friday, September 22nd is a film that has a very poignant title, and it's called How to Deal with Heartbreak. How to Deal with a Heartbreak, which already has me interested because I've been down that road before. I think basically everybody has. Everybody plays the fool, right? So, How to Deal with a Heartbreak. I have to get through some of these other film titles, like How to Deal, which was a 2003 movie starring Mandy Moore. I'm going to get through that. But this movie is not, or rather... The websites aren't telling me anything. All I know is that it stars Jason Day, Salvador De Solar, Karina Jordan, and Norma Norma Martinez, amongst other people. So I can't tell you very much. I'm sorry about that. But I'll let you know what I think if I see it. And the last film that is subject to being released on Netflix is the first Spy Kids movie that is not released in theaters. This is interesting. The movie is called Spy Kids Armageddon, and this is the fifth film in the Spy Kids series. Like the other Spy Kids films, it is directed by and co-written by Robert Rodriguez. And it is about the children of the world's greatest secret agents unwittingly helping a powerful game developer unleash a computer virus that gives him control of all technology, leading them to become spies themselves to save their parents and the world. That kind of sounds like the plot of the original movie, but in this film, the same act, definitely the same actors who played the spy kids in the original 2001 film are not in this film because they're not kids anymore. That film was made over 20 years ago. But also, some of the other people who were in that film, like Antonio Banderas, Carla Gugina, Terry Hatcher, are not in this film. Instead, The parents are played by Zachary Levy, best known for having played Shazam in some of the more decent DCEU movies, and also Gina Rodriguez, best known for playing Jane the Virgin. But I have seen Gina Rodriguez in a number of other films as well, and she is a good actress. So, Spy Kids Armageddon has some very tough acts to follow, especially considering that it comes after some rather uneventful and unimpressive sequels, including but not limited to Spy Kids 3, Game over, and Spy Kids 4 all the time in the world. Now the latter film came out in 2011, 12 years ago. It also came out during the 3D movie craze, but this one was was four as in 4D. and you might be wondering what the fourth dimension is. Technically, the fourth dimension, in addition to length, width, and depth, is time. But the gimmick here, which nobody bought, was that the gimmick was not only could you see things in 3D, you could also smell things. Yeah, they actually pumped scents into the theater. And yeah, kids just didn't buy it. Adults didn't buy it either for their kids. So Spy Kids 4 was a bomb. So no wonder that that this Spy Kids movie is coming out not in theaters because I think we'd been burned by Spy Kids 4 already. I don't have the highest hopes for Spy Kids Armageddon, but if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures and I am your host and movie critic Dan Burke reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of Brand new movies. This is Dan Burke saying, I'll see you at the movies.